Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, and we'll read verses 14 through 22. Revelation 3, 14 through 22. And the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed." And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together as we come to the preaching of God's word. Father, help us. As we come to your word, help me to preach in a way that is beneficial for this flock. Help me to apply your word in a way that's faithful and clear and help us take to heart what is said here. We know that we can learn from every single one of these churches, all seven. And we pray that we would take to heart what is said to the Laodiceans and that we would take to heart the warning and the rebuke of Christ and the need to hear what he has to say, to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so fill us by your Spirit. Help me to preach faithfully. Help us all to be desirous of your word. Help us not be indifferent to it, but help us long to receive it and long to hear your truth. And so we pray that you would help all of us in this time and help me to preach in a way that pleases you and glorifies our risen and reigning Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is the last of the churches. This is number seven. This is the last church that's addressed. And we will see that this church, the church of the Laodiceans, is the one who has received the most scathing rebuke from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's interesting, in the other churches there was at least some commendation. Even for the church of Sardis, there was a few names that Jesus mentions that had not defiled their garments. The church of the Laodiceans, there's no positive word to them. It's all negative. It's all rebuke. It's all a call to repentance. And so this one is very unique because Jesus is giving a strong warning to a church that needs it very desperately because they have nothing which the Lord can commend them about. Other churches have things to commend. But this church has nothing that Christ believes and knows as the one who sees and knows all things can commend them about. What a scary place to be when people are part of a church and Jesus has nothing good to say about them. And so we see that here. And so we must take it to heart because we want to hear what is, why is Jesus so strong against this church? What is the problem with this church? And if God is helping us and giving us grace, we might not be here at this point. And I pray we're not. But churches can always slip 
into ways that are not faithful to Christ, if they're not zealous and not faithful and not keeping watch over themselves and over the church. And so may we take to heart what we can learn from this church that is described as lukewarm. Lukewarm. And so the main point of this sermon is to the angel of the ch- to the angel and church of the Laodiceans who are lukewarm and Christ is going to vomit them out of his mouth and his call for repentance and overcoming. So my first point to the angel and church of the Laodiceans to the angel and church of the Laodiceans. Second point lukewarm and Christ is going to vomit them out of his mouth. My third point, his call for repentance and overcoming. So again, my first point to the angel and church of the Laodiceans. We see in verse 14, the angel of the church of the Laodiceans writes. So again, like I've been saying, the angel are the leaders or the leaders or the leader of the church in Laodicea, he is the one, or they are the ones who are shepherding this flock and given to the oversight of it. And then we see, again, this is the church of the Laodiceans, and we see again, like all the other letters, they're directly from Christ to the church. And Jesus in the other letters refers to himself in different ways. In this letter, he refers to himself as the amen, as the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of of the creation of God. The amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of the creation of God. So first, Jesus describes himself, the one giving this message, as the amen. Many of us are familiar with that word, of course. We have been singing it at the end of our psalms and hymns. We say it at the end of our prayers, and it is a word of affirmation, of agreement, of let it be. It is us coming together with one voice saying that this will be so. And so Jesus is the amen because all of God's promises are fulfilled in Christ. All of God's yeses are in him. Every spiritual blessing for the child of God is found in Jesus Christ. And there's no spiritual blessing for any person if they're not in the amen, the yes of God, the agreement of God in that sense, the the one who has fulfilled all of God's promises, Jesus Christ. If you turn with me to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. If you look at verse 19, I'll start actually verse 18. So 2 Corinthians 1, 18, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. Second Corinthians 1, 18 says, But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanius and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. So all the promises of God are yes, and they're amen in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Let me just make this very practical. There is no blessing that you've ever received that has not come to you through Jesus Christ. Every spiritual blessing that we have from God is a benefit we have in Christ. Everything we have is in Christ. And that's why I haven't done an exact study, so I don't want to say it dogmatically, but my guess is that the way Christians are described the most, this would be my guess, you can, you can check and look yourself. This might be a good research project for someone if they're interested. But my guess is that the most common way that Christians are referred to in the New Testament would be some way or some derivative of in Christ whether in Christ or in him or in the beloved, all ways of saying, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means to be in Christ. And what does it mean to be a lost person? It means to be without Christ or outside of Christ. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 2, we actually see that language. In Ephesians chapter 2, we see the language of lost people, and that's how they're described. Ephesians 2 and verse 12. Ephesians 2, 12. 
So if to be a Christian is to be in Christ, we'll see here what it means to be a lost person, what it means to be a non-Christian, what it means to be a non-believer. So this is Ephesians 2.12, that at that time you were without Christ. And then he goes on, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But then look at verse 13. He contrasts it. When you were an unbeliever, what were you? You were without Christ. Now, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. When you were an unbeliever, you were without Christ. When you are saved, you go to become in Christ Jesus. Because all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Or if you look at chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 3. Chapter 1, verse 3. where We were in Ephesians 2, now Ephesians chapter 1. It says in verse 3, Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. How have you received spiritual blessings in the heavenly places? You've received them in Christ. No spiritual blessing has ever come to us if it hasn't come to us in the amen, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because he is the fulfillment and the reality of all of God's promises. But then secondly, he's described as the faithful and true witness. He is the one who is the faithful witness because he only does the will of the Father. And he's the true witness because he never speaks lies. He is the truth itself. And therefore, he is described as the faithful and the true witness. He is the one who cannot lie. And his testimony about God, about salvation, about life, about any subject is faithful and it's true. And so Jesus is the amen. All the promises of God are fulfilled in him. He's the faithful and true witness because he faithfully serves the Father and he is the one who speaks truth. And then he is the beginning of the creation of God. (laughs) This is interesting language. That's how the New King James translates it. The beginning of the creation of God. Of course, we shouldn't think of this as he's the first creature. That would be blasphemous. It doesn't mean he was the first one made. There are cults that teach that. Like the Jehovah's Witness teach that Jesus is the first created of God. But that's not what this verse teaches. It's using the word beginning as the originator. The one who is the foundation of creation. Because we know all things were from him. And through him. And to him. He is the one through whom all things were made. And for whom. And so in that sense he is the originator. He is the creator of all things. Everything is made by Christ and for Christ. And so that's what it means that he is the beginning of the creation of God. He is the originator, the founder, the one in whom all creation has been made. And that's why John can say in John 1, 1 through 3, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, the Word, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. Or Colossians can put it like this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him or through him, all things were created. Things in heaven, things on earth, whether principalities or powers, might or dominion. All things were created through him. Or things visible and things invisible. All things were created through him and for him. And so Jesus, the Son of God is the creator of all things. He is the beginning of the creation of God. And so Jesus is telling this church, this is who and what I am. I am the amen. All the promises of God are true in me and find their climax in me. I'm the faithful and true witness because I faithfully serve the Father and testify of nothing but the truth. And I am the beginning of the creation of God. I am the creator of all things. And I have sovereign dominion over everything because I'm the creator, the beginning of the creation of God. But now my second point. So that's the one who is addressing them, our Lord Jesus Christ, the church of the Laodiceans. But now my second point, lukewarm and Christ is going to vomit them out of his mouth. 
lukewarm in Christ is going to vomit them out of his mouth. Verse 15 says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are, ne- you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. So Jesus says he knows their works, but he knows their works in a negative sense. We have seen that Jesus has eyes like a flame of fire. He sees everything. And so he knows the works of the church of the Laodiceans. But their works, when he evaluates them as a church, he sees they're neither hot nor cold. They're neither cold nor hot. He even says, I would rather you be cold or hot, but you're lukewarm. And because of that, he says, I will spew you or vomit you out of my mouth. The interesting thing in citing this passage is there's different views of what it means cold or hot. <laughs> I'll tell you the two main views. The, some people take cold to mean completely spiritually dead. No interest in the things of God. No desire for the things of God. Stone cold dead. No profession. No desire for Christ. No even external connection to Christ. That's how some people view cold. And then some people view then hot as people who have a real relationship with God that's zealous and true, walking faithfully with the Lord, zealously pursuing him, loving him, obeying him, and keeping his commandments as a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. So that's one view. And I can understand why people could come to that. So the way they interpret it, Jesus is saying it's better that you would be, have no interest in me at all, no profession, than be a hypocrite and be lukewarm. That's, I, I would rather you just say I have no desire for Christ than be a hypocrite and be lukewarm. And we'll see what he means by lukewarm in verse 17. That's one view. Another view, which might be more the one I view, I lean to, but it could be either one possibly, is that cold and hot are both positive. Because we think about this. If a drink or something is cold, it's refreshing. There's a benefit. It's useful. Many of us like cold drinks because they're refreshing. You're playing a sport, you might like a cold Gatorade or a cold Powerade or a cold vitamin water, whatever is your preference. Or you might also like a hot drink on a cold day. Maybe some of you like hot chocolate or hot coffee or hot tea, whatever it is. But there's a benefit to both. But most people don't like lukewarm drinks, or especially we don't like lukewarm food. It it doesn't have a benefit to it. Most people uh, don't enjoy if their food is lukewarm or their drink is lukewarm. They either want it cold or hot in in drinks, or if it's a cold dish, they want it cold, or a hot dish, they want it hot. And so that's a way of looking at it. Jesus isn't saying, I want you cold, meaning I want you stone cold, dead cold. I'd rather you just reject me completely, or hot, zealous. He's saying both are positive because if you're cold, you're refreshing. If you're warm, you're soothing and helpful. So he's distinguishing between these two groups that are both good and lukewarm. The reason I take that view is because to me, and I, I can understand why someone could say Jesus would rather them just not profess at all than be a hypocrite. I can understand why that could make sense. But it seemed to me the most sense that Jesus wouldn't be encouraging people to reject him. He wouldn't say, I would rather you just be rejecting me completely, have no desire for me at all, have no interest in me, and that's what I'd rather you be, just stone cold dead. It seems to make the most sense that he's using these both positive, but he's saying this group, the Laodiceans, they're not either of these positives. They're not cold, they're not hot, they're lukewarm. So they're not useful, they're not beneficial. They're not in a place that's helpful. It's because they're neither hot nor cold. Because verse 16, he says, or, or verse 15 first, the end of verse 15, I could wish you were cold or hot. But then he says, so then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. You're neither one of these. So if my interpretation I'm giving you, and I, again, I'm acknowledging that I can understand both, but if the way I'm taking it as both positive He's saying, I wish you were either cold to be refreshing or warm to be soothing, but you're neither of those things. You're lukewarm. And because of that, you're nauseating to me, which is such strong language. Jesus says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. I will spew you out of my mouth. Jesus is saying, when I look at you as a church, I find disgust. I mean, some of you maybe have eaten something and tasted something or tried something and your body reacts bad to it. 
It, it did not, and what is it sometimes called? You to vomit because you're disgusted by it. Because you don't enjoy the flavor. It's something that nauseates you and you spit it out of your mouth. Maybe that's happened to you. And that's in a, in a similar way what Jesus is describing. This lukewarm church of the Laodiceans is nauseating to him because they're neither cold nor hot. But then we'll see in verse 17, what, is it, what does Jesus mean by lukewarm? What does Jesus mean by lukewarm? Verse 17. Because you say, okay, so Jesus is, real quickly, just so we're on the same page, Jesus is now defining what he means by lukewarm. Because we can, we can have things in our mind, when we think lukewarm, we might put many definitions of that. But Jesus helpfully defines what he is meaning by lukewarm. Because he says, because, I'll spit you out of my mouth, I'll vomit you out of my mouth, you're lukewarm, because, this is why I consider you lukewarm. So this is very important. Let me just make this clear because I do really want to make this point. A lot of people can have a lot of different views of what it means to be lukewarm. But we want to take Jesus' definition of what he means when he says this church is lukewarm. And he helpfully defines it. He says, again, verse 17, Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. That's what Jesus means by this church being lukewarm. Think how prideful this sounds. I'm rich, I become wealthy, and I need nothing. That's what Jesus means why this church is lukewarm. They have become self-sufficient. They have seen themselves as sufficient in themselves, and therefore they say, I have need of nothing. Very contrary to what the Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, says. He describes himself as he's talking about the ministry. He says, who is sufficient for these things? As he understands his ministry and his life and his service to Christ, he feels the weight of it and says, who is sufficient for these things? How can I ever do these things? And in another passage, he says, our sufficiency is of God, not of self, not of our own strength. We don't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and Press on, because without Jesus, we can do nothing. So for a church to say, I need nothing, is the height of spiritual pride. Because we can do all things that are according to the will of God, especially then that text, contentment, being content in every situation. How can we do all things? Through Christ, who strengthens me. Through Christ who strengthens me. There's a very popular movement in our day that is similar to how the Laodiceans are speaking. It's called the self-help movement. That help is in yourself. That the problem is outside of you. And you're the solution to your own problems. I love to summarize the self-help movement in this way. I can do all things through me who strengthens me. Because the problem is always someone else. Someone else is the problem. It's someone else. If I didn't have this person or that person, then I would be different. And the solution that they tell people is you. You are the solution for yourself. You are rich. You're wealthy in yourself. You don't need anybody's help. You can do it by yourself. And that's what the Laodiceans were being deceived by. You can do it by yourself. You don't need anything. You're in need of nothing. They're saying. They're saying about themselves. They've said, I'm rich. I become wealthy and I have need of nothing. And so they are being self-deceived when they should have known, they should know that the only hope that they have to be anything is in Christ, who is the amen, the faithful and true witness and the beginning of the creation of God. They find their sufficiency in themselves. They find ultimately fulfillment, not in someone else, not in Christ as in their profession, but in themselves. In John chapter, John chapter 5, if you turn there, John chapter 5, and verse 44, we see something similar with, with the Pharisees in how they were and, and this reality that they were not looking to God, but to self. 
So verse 44, John 5, verse 44. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? So they were seeking honor from men. They were finding their sufficiency in themselves and seeking honor from from other people and not the honor that came from God, not the praise of God, but the praise of men. That was a key thing that Jesus rebuked the Pharisees about consistently is they love the praise of men more than the praise that comes from God. And so we see that this church, in their own estimation, was rich, had become wealthy, and therefore needed nothing. What a, what a terrible place to be. To think that in yourself, you are in need of nothing. And we know it, they mean it by themselves. They don't mean I, I don't need anything because I have Christ and I have salvation. They don't mean it that way because that would be positive. But Jesus is rebuking them. So they're not saying I don't need anything because I have Christ as my, my Savior. I'm, he's my all in all and therefore I have everything I need. They're, they're saying in a prideful sense of looking to themselves. And we know how dangerous pride is. The Bible says about pride, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I don't exactly know what it means for God to resist you, but I do know you don't want it. Whatever exactly it means for God to resist a person, I mean, it means to oppose him, of course. I have a general idea, but all the implications of that One thing I do know, you don't want God to resist you. And it says God resists the proud. He's against them, but he gives grace to the humble. This shows us how serious pride is. It is is a devilish sin, this pride that looks to self. And this is why much so-called counseling is so devilish. And so demonic because much modern day counseling to help people, they tell people, you have all the resources in yourself and the problem is other people. If it wasn't for those other people, you'd be just fine. You're the answer to your problems. That's devilish counseling. That's demonic counseling. Because it's saying that the answer, you're your own savior. The solution is in you. You need nothing. When the Bible teaches us the exact opposite. You know, biblical counseling and biblical help is the exact opposite. You know what biblical counseling is? Let me just say this because I don't want to be misheard. People can be victims and be taken advantage of and be the innocent party. That does happen, of course. So I'm, with that clarification, yes, there are times where we are just the victim of abuse or mistreatment, and that can happen. So I want everybody to hear that. There is a category for that. So... No one misunderstand me by what I'm about to say. There is a category where we are the victim. But many times, the answer for us is we are the problem and the answer is outside of ourselves. We're the problem and we need help from Christ and his Holy Spirit through the word of God to answer our problems. Now, the problem isn't this person because no one makes us sin. They might cause extra temptation, but we have a responsibility before God to deal with our own hearts, to deal with our own desires and thoughts. And therefore, if, we're ever, if you ever are in a situation where you can give someone biblical counsel, what you should always point them to is not sufficiency in themselves, but the sufficiency from God through his word by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because all the spiritual blessings are in Christ. But the wonderful thing for us as believers, Jesus says as a general statement, but particularly for the benefit of his people, if you then being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father, and there's two different ways he puts it in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's. I'm quoting Luke's version. How much more will the Holy Spirit, how much more will that father give the Holy Spirit's to those who ask him. If we're believers, we have the Holy Spirit, but what does he mean by that? He means that we consistently need the filling and enabling power of the Holy Spirit. Because being filled by the Holy Spirit is not a one-time thing. The moment we believe, we're indwelt, but we consistently need to be not drunk with wine, but filled with the Holy Spirit. Not under the influence of alcohol, but under the influence of the Holy Spirit, being led and directed and guided by him, not in ourselves. This is so important. Because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble.
So Jesus then tells us, what is the truth of this church? If they're not truly rich, become wealthy, and have need of nothing, what are they according to our Lord? They are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That's what they are in truth. They are not rich, they're wretched. They're miserable because they see themselves in a way that is wrong. They're poor. They're not spiritually rich. They're spiritually poor. They don't have the riches of Christ like they ought. They're they're spiritually impoverished. They're blind. They don't see like they ought. And they're naked because we'll see they don't have the white garment on. I don't know how much worse of of a way that Jesus could describe a church. It's very strong. Wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That's what they're like. That's who they are. They're not in need of nothing. They're actually in great need. They're so bad, their need is extremely great. Extremely great. They're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. This shows us as well in application is this is why we have to be mindful of not basing our ultimate, even though we are the ones who have to seek assurance for ourselves and by ourselves, by the word of God, we also need other people to help us. Because sometimes we can think things or feel a certain way about ourselves that aren't really true. And this church thought a certain way about themselves that wasn't really true. And we need the counsel and help of other people to be able to encourage us and help us see what we might not see. And we need to love each other enough not to be professional nitpickers, because that can be a problem too, but to help each other when we see that we're not seeing things the way we ought. And so we should instead seek others and especially the word of God to see ourselves rightly so that we would not see ourselves as rich, becoming wealthy and in need of nothing. If in truth we're like these people, and hopefully we aren't, but wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And so we see that exhortation. This is how the church sees themselves. But this is how Jesus sees them in truth. But now my, well, let me, let me go to a text really quick. Turn, turn to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. As we see this reality of connection with how the Pharisees thought about themselves. John chapter 9. John chapter 9. And if you look at verses 39 through 41. John 9, 39 through 41. It says in verse 39, And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may be made blind. And some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind you would have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. Very interesting discussion about seeing and blindness. But I I think what Jesus is getting at, that if you acknowledge that you were by nature blind, if you saw yourself as blind and wretched and poor and miserable, and you saw yourself like that, you know what would be the response? You would come to me. But because you think in yourself, you see, you don't come. You, You see, I'm rich. I'm wealthy. I don't need anything. And so because you say, we see, your sin remains. You don't come to me for life. So the Pharisees, their problem was they thought they saw, they thought they had spiritual sight. And Jesus says, actually, you don't see. Because if you saw, you would believe and you would have no sin because your sin would be forgiven. And so Jesus is showing them that reality. And even Jesus Quoting from Isaiah, or he brings up this connected with the parables. Seeing, they will not see. Hearing, they will not understand unless they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn to me and be healed. So he's saying they see in themselves, they think, but seeing they don't see. Hearing they don't hear. They don't, because that's why Jesus even himself says, let him who has ears to hear, or we could say even eyes to see, let him see. But they did not see like they ought. And we see this church of the Laodiceans. They don't see like they ought. They don't see themselves as wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked as Jesus sees them. But now my third point. 
his calling for repentance and overcoming. His call for repentance and overcoming. Look at verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. So Jesus counsels them to buy three things from him, gold, white garments, and eye salve. But if you turn with me to Isaiah 55, that helps us understand what Jesus means by buy it. Isaiah chapter 55. Because we, we want to understand what Jesus means by buy. Because that, that could be a confusing way of hearing it because we think about what he offers as free. Colossians, or Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah 55, starting, or I'll just read verse 1. Isaiah 55 and verse 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. So Jehovah is calling out to the people and saying, Ho, everyone who thirsts, buy wine and milk from me. But you know how you're going to buy it? Without money. And without price, because it's free. You buy it, but it's free. It's almost like an oxymoron, but he's saying, I'm going to sell it to you, but you don't need any money to get it. You buy it without money and without price. And so Jesus is saying something very similar. I want you to buy these things from me, but you buy them without money and without price. I'm not selling them for any monetary value. I'm giving them to you free, but I want you to buy them from me without money and without price. And so first he exhorts them to buy from him gold, refine the fire that they may be rich. This church thought that they were spiritually rich. They thought they had spiritual riches, but in truth, they didn't. They were poor. And Jesus is saying, buy from me true gold, that you can be spiritually rich, that you can have riches, and therefore be spiritually rich in truth, that you would be really rich, that you would actually have riches, that I give you, not your so-called riches, but true riches. One of my favorite verses, this might be my favorite verse currently in the Bible, it can always change, but my favorite verse in the Bible, I think now, says this, very connected with this. For you know, this is 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful way to start a verse. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And so the Son of God assumed a human nature and therefore took on poverty. He still was rich according to his divine nature, but he took on poverty as a man so that we in him could become spiritually rich. He became spiritually poor for us as a man. By living for us, dying for us, rising again, so that we, by faith in him, could be spiritually rich. He humbled himself and became poor, according to his human nature, that we, by faith in him, could have riches. That we could have without money and without price. And the reason why they're free for us is Jesus paid so that we could get the riches. They are paid for, but they're just not paid for by us. They're paid by the Lord of glory. He paid for the riches that we could have. This is, I mean, we, we think about, sometimes people will say, I've heard people say, nothing is free. Sometimes we can say back or at least think, salvation is? Salvation is? Salvation is without money and without price. It's a gift of God for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's not by money. It's not by price. It's a free gift that we received by the empty hand of beggarly faith that receives and rests upon Christ and the riches he provides. This is what makes the gospel such good news. We don't go up to people and say, you're living in sin, you're doing wrong, fix your life, become better, and try to earn your own righteousness. Try to earn your own riches before God. That's how many religions, they won't put it in that exact way, but that's how they, they think. We tell people, Yes, you are in sin. Yes, you are on your way to a real eternal hell. But the good news for you is you can get real riches without money 
and without price. It can be a gift that you don't need to pay for, that you don't need to earn, that you can just simply receive by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's what makes the gospel good news. It's not based on us. It's all based on Christ who has done it for us. And then he tells them that they would buy from him, again, without money and without price, white garments, that they would be clothed, that the shame of their nakedness may not be revealed. So he exhorts them to buy white garments from him that they would find true clothing and the shame of their nakedness would not be revealed. If you turn with me to Matthew 22, we see this connection with a white garment or the importance of this garment and the need for it. Matthew chapter 22, verses 11 through 13. Matthew 22, 11 through 13. Matthew 22, 11 through 13. If you see here, we'll see the importance of this wedding garment. This is the parable of the wedding feast. Sending out the servants to call those to the wedding banquet. Verse 11. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him in outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we see here the need for this garment, this garment being a picture of Christ's perfect righteousness, his robe of righteousness that he gives to us. And this person had come into the wedding banquet, the wedding feast with no wedding garment on. And therefore he was cast out into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so we see how important it is that these people have this garment on. Because the only way that we can be reconciled to God and stand before the thrice holy God, who the angels are not of pure sight to look before him, their eyes are covered, their feet are covered, and they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The only way that we can stand before God acceptable is if we have this garment on. This wedding garment, this white garment, that we would be clothed before God and not naked so that the shame of our nakedness may not be revealed. So we see that there's a shamefulness to being naked, to being exposed, and a glory and a blessing to have this garment on to be covered. And so Jesus is telling them, buy for me true riches. And buy for me this white garment that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And then lastly in verse 18, he says, And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. And so he's telling them not only to buy from him riches, not only to buy from him this white garment, but buy from him this anointing eye salve that they would be able to see. So that they could see themselves clearly as he sees them, and have spiritual eyesight. So they would have spiritual riches, they would have the spiritual garments, and they would have spiritual sights. Because right now, they don't have spiritual riches, they're poor. They don't have spiritual sight, they're blind. And they don't have spiritual clothing, they're naked. So these three things are answering their problem. If they take of this, these riches, this garment, and this eye salve, their wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked state will go away. They'll go from being poor to rich. They'll go from being blind to see. They'll go from naked to seeing, or naked to clothed. And they'll go from wretched and miserable to joyful, glad, and celebrating. If you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 60, Isaiah 60, as we see the blessing of having these things. It's actually 61, Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 and verse 10. Isaiah 61, 10 and 11. Isaiah 61, 10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. 
For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. So we see that I will greatly rejoice. Why? Why will I be joyful, my God? Because he's clothed me in the garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robe of righteousness. He's covered me with this precious garment that is the robe of my salvation. And then verses, verse 19, back in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. This is, a, this is still a church of Jesus Christ. Where exactly, obviously we see they're in a very bad state, but they're described as the church of the Laodiceans. They haven't been completely cast off. And so Jesus, as their loving head, he loves them. And he, those who Jesus loves, he rebukes, he chastens, he, he disciplines, he corrects. Because he doesn't want them to be in this state. He wants them to be in a better state. With spiritual riches, spiritual sight, spiritual clothing. And therefore he says, therefore be zealous and repent. This church is exhorted by Christ to be zealous as it relates to their blindness and their nakedness and their spiritual poverty. And be zealous and repent. You know what repentance would look like? It would this church saying, we have nothing to commend ourselves before God. We are spiritually bankrupt. We are without anything to offer before God. We are not rich. We are poor. We are not, we are not those who have what we need. We are spiritually impoverished. And what would repentance be? They would buy from Christ without money and without price the garments, the eye salve, and the riches. That's what repentance would look like. They would go from being those who are prideful to humble. They would be going from those whom Christ is resisting to those whom Christ is giving grace as he gives grace to the humble. And so they are to be zealous. They are to repent of their lukewarmness. And then he says in verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Christ is then, in verse 20, pictured not in the church, but outside. Of course, Christ is omnipresent, so according to his divine nature, he's everywhere. But he's pictured in this to, for us to get the point as not inside the church, but outside. He's outside the church, standing at the door, knocking, both upon individuals that they would take his word to heart and to the church collectively. He's outside the church, but he's, he's not inside we see this, that this church, because of where they were at, were not having fellowship with Christ. He was not in their midst. He was not dwelling with them. He was outside. And therefore, he was telling anyone who would hear his voice to open the door and that he will come and dine with him and he with me. That they will have spiritual fellowship with Christ, either renewed, because I haven't really got into whether these people are lost or saved, because they're a church, so it's, it's, it's somewhat confusing for me a little bit if I'm honest. But either way, they will either have spiritual renewed fellowship because they've been for a season not living as they ought, or they will have original uh, fellowship with Christ through saving faith. But we see he exhorts them to hear his voice, open the door that he might dine with them and he with them. And so we see this reality, this, this need for repentance, for turning to the spiritual riches that Christ offers and to fellowshipping with Christ and not removing him from this church. And so that's what we see. We see the exhortation. And so let me just now just apply to us. If any of us are here thinking that somehow we've arrived or we don't need Christ or we are sufficient in ourselves or we have need of nothing, then we're in a bad place. No matter how long we've been Christians, no matter how many years we've been following Christ, we should always say our sufficiency is of God. 
We should always say, without Christ, I can do nothing. We should always say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We should always be saying, without him, I am nothing. Because Christ is in all, is all and in all. So we must never come to this place that I am good in myself. I don't need Christ. And sometimes this can happen for people. They, they feel like they know enough. They've done enough. They, they, they know the ropes. And so therefore they become passive in, in their dependence upon Christ. But no, until we reach glory and even after, we are completely dependent upon the resurrected and reigning Christ, who is the amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of the creation of God. We never outgrow our need for Jesus. We never come to a place where we no longer need his grace and his enablement and his strength. Because again, without him, we can do nothing. And so we never want to get to the place of spiritual pride. We always want to acknowledge that everything we have is from him, through him, to him. And we want to confess, where do our riches come from? They come from Christ. He is the riches of God for us. Where, do, where does our garment come of righteousness? From Christ. Where, how can we see? Because of Christ. And that's why we can confess, like Jonah of old, salvation belongs to the Lord. Not unto us. This is now the psalmist. Not unto us. Not unto us. But to your name give glory. Because of your mercy. Because of your truth. Not unto us. And so we must confess that everything we have is in Christ. Not that we are in need of nothing, as this church proudly said, in a proud way said. And then verse 21, he says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. How is this connected? We see that this church is very proud. Very proud. I'm in need of nothing. But we see Christ was the exact opposite. The Son of God assumed a human nature and therefore he humbled himself. The Son of God overcame by humbling himself. He was the Son of God, the very Son of God who was in the form of God. He humbled himself by taking the form of a bondservant. That's how he became nothing and and humbled himself in such a great way. And because of his humiliation, he was exalted. Because he was willing to humble himself even in the point of death, even the death of the cross, because of that, he was highly exalted and given the name that is above every name. And now Jesus, as our reigning king, is at the right hand of the majesty on high. How did Jesus overcome? By humility. How do we overcome? The same way. Because he who exalts himself, what happens? They get humbled. He who humbles himself, what happens? They get exalted. Jesus is the pattern for us. Just like he humbled himself, So we humble ourselves to be exalted to his throne, just as he humbled himself to be exalted. So we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, not by exalting ourselves, but by humbling ourselves, just like he did all the way to the cross so that he might receive victory as the overcoming king. And so we must humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God that in due time he may exalt us, as 1 Peter says. Let me just turn you there because I really want you to see it. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5 as we see this exhortation to humility. First Peter, I'll, I'll read 5 through 7 because there's connection. Even this phrase that I've been quoting, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. But 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7. It says, 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7. Likewise, you younger people, Submit yourself to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, because that's true, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Why? That he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. In light of the reality of God resisting the proud and giving grace to the humble. Our response always to God is humbling ourselves. Not so we wouldn't be exalted, but exalted not by ourselves, but by him in due time. And so we see that we are to 
overcome by faith in Christ, by humbling ourselves, by casting ourselves upon Christ, not by spiritual pride. And then verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. How do we, how do we take what is being said here first? Without Christ, no one can ever experience the blessing of seeing or these garments or this gold. Without repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, no one will ever experience the blessings of eternal life. Because if someone is not in Christ, they are maybe not with their words, but by their actions saying, I need nothing. Why do people resist Christ? Because they think, I need nothing. I'm good. I've even, sometimes when I'm giving out tracts, it's ironic or talk, trying to try to have a conversation. People will say, I'm good. The irony of that is crazy. I'm good. Because they're confessing, in a sense, I don't need your religious material because I'm good. I don't need that. I'm in need of nothing as it relates to God. Not realizing that they're miserable, poor, blind, and naked without Christ. And so without Christ, no one can ever be acceptable to God. No one can ever enter into heaven unless they come into the one who is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. He alone can give us this eye salve, can give us these riches, and can give us this refined gold. If you want to be spiritually rich, it's in Christ. If you want to be spiritually clothed, it's in Christ. If you want to spiritually see, it's in Christ. Because all the blessings... All spiritual blessings are in him. And then for us as as believers, let us look to the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God as our all-sufficient savior. And let us not become prideful. Let us never go into the way of being prideful, thinking we need nothing. What What a shameful thing to say when we realize that in ourselves, we are without hope before God. And instead, let us always confess, Christ is all and in all. And without him, you or me or any person can do nothing. Let us always confess that. Let us always remember that our sufficiency is of God. And that whatever we have, we have it as a gift. This is similar language how the Apostle Paul speaks. What do you have that you have not received? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you have not received it? We are to glory in God as the one who gives us everything good. Not in ourselves. Not unto us. Not unto us. But to your name be glory. Because of your mercy. Because of your truth. Psalm 115 verse 1. Not unto us. But to the Lord. Whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do. Do it to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Or Colossians 3.17. And whatever you do in word or deed. Do everything In the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We do everything for Christ and because of Christ, knowing that everything we have good is from him. And what a blessing if we are believers, true believers, that we have by God's grace bought without money and without price, gold and garments and eye salve from Christ. And you before God, if you have bought these things without any money, are spiritually rich, are spiritually clothed, and also spiritually seen. If it wasn't for God's grace, you would be spiritually naked. You would be spiritually impoverished, and you would be spiritually blind because the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. But God, by his grace, has shined in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see not because you're better than other people, If you do see, you see because God has shown you grace. And therefore, we should never say, I'm in need of nothing. And how desperately it is for a church to not go through the motions. This church was not fellowshipping with Christ. Whatever was going on, Christ was outside. He wasn't inside. And therefore, it's important when we worship, we're not just going through the motions, but we must worship Christ in fellowship with him, praying for him to meet with us and draw near us as we draw near to him. It's not wrong to pray that God would draw near. We're commanded to draw near to God and he will draw near to us. We know God is omnipresent, so it doesn't mean, of course, God is not in that place. 
but it means we're not experiencing the blessing of his loving fellowship as our heavenly father. And so we pray as we come to God, Father, please, I'm drawing near to you. I want to draw near to you. Please draw near to me. Don't cast me off. Don't allow me to see myself in a way that you don't see me. Help me draw near to you with humble dependence, knowing that you resist the proud, but you give grace to the humble. And what a blessing it is that everyone who overcomes And we overcome like Christ did by humbling ourselves and then being exalted by God in due time. We'll sit on his throne. We'll have the blessing of sitting on his throne just as he sat down on his father's throne. But it comes through humility. Augustine said something to the effect of what are the three great Christian virtues? We know the ultimate one is is love, but it was an interesting point that Augustine was saying. Humility, humility, Humility. That's so crucial in the Christian life. That we humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God so that in due time we might be exalted. And so pray for me, pray for yourself, that we would see ourselves rightly and always confess, even to our last breath, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Help us to humble ourselves before you that we may be exalted in due time. Forgive us of our sin, sins of pride and help us to walk in, in a humble spirit, knowing that everything we have is a gift from you by your grace. And we thank you that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is found, not in ourselves, but in Christ. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.